The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. All right, I'm going to ask for a show of hands real quick. Who among us made New Year's resolutions? Maybe it's a soft resolution, a hard resolution. Okay, a few of us made some resolutions. Okay, I'm going to embarrass some of you. Who among us have already given up on the resolution? No? Okay. I was expecting at least one of us. All right, so maybe you're too embarrassed to share. I'll give you an opportunity to redeem yourself. Who among us made a resolution in 22 and stuck the landing and finished it? Anybody? Nice. Now, of course, Drew Plumley did, of course, of all, of all people. It was, you know, yeah, something to do with running long distances and embarrassing the mere mortals among us. <laughs> what is more satisfying than a finish? There's nothing quite like the power of a strong ending, good resolution, and completion. How many of, how many of us have, have read a book and it was just a, an incredibly, it, it was maybe a, maybe a decent book, but it had such a great ending, it was like, yes, I want to turn back to the beginning and experience this once again. There's nothing quite like a story that lands just right, a movie that lands just right. Even in music, I was thinking this week, it's kind of wild. Songs are built in a way that are structured to be like stories. Songs are built with dissonance and resolution. They're shaped like the stories we tell. There's conflict in the music. There's conflict between the notes. But ultimately, a good song comes back to some kind of resolve. It lands the plane. It's almost as if humans were built for endings craving for satisfaction and completeness. Now, one of the things that we like to do during this time as a church is to teach through books of the Bible because we believe that the the Bible has wisdom for us and that it teaches us about who God is and it teaches us about what life before him is to look like. But the Bible isn't just a religious text of do's and don'ts. Rather, the Bible actually tells a story. In fact, what we like to say is that the Bible tells the true story of the whole world. And it begins at the very beginning when God created all things out of an abundance of his goodness and grace. It was like, God God is like a fountain. He is so full of life and goodness and beauty that it splashes over into the creation of all that exists. But we also know that that didn't last very long. That through God's goodness and his graciousness, he created all things and he entrusted ruling over creation to humanity But the result is is that we fell and we introduced every kind of disarray and disorder and all flavors of chaos into the mix. But because God is good and supreme and in keeping with who he has shown himself to be in creation, he doesn't respond to our folly by backing away or by abandoning us. No, his goodness and supremacy is seen in the way that he sends Jesus to become one of us to fix us, to right all of the things that were made wrong. Jesus embracing humanity even to the point of death. God himself is subject to decay and disorder and disarray and the chaos we introduce so that he could be resurrected and so that he could restore all things. And then the story tells us that there's going to be an ending, that the plane is going to be landed, that there is a triumphant conclusion to all of history where the Lord Jesus rights all wrongs, he makes all sad things untrue, When the good behind all good overwhelms all darkness, the joy behind all joys is unveiled and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of his Christ. 
A triumphant conclusion where the dead in Christ are raised from the dead, given a new body like Christ's body, where heaven and earth are reunited, our world is transformed into a world on the other side of sorrow, completed, finished, the end. And in light of that grand ending, Paul the Apostle writes a letter 2,000 years ago. Paul is sitting in the stocks of a, of a prison, probably in Ephesus, stirred with love and affection for a group of Christians in a city called Philippi. He writes a letter, and he tells them two things. I pray with confidence that God will bring you to completion. God will bring you to this happy ending, this triumphant conclusion. The Lord Jesus will usher you there himself. I pray with confidence that God will bring you to completion, and I pray that God would prepare you for this day. That's what we're going to see in this passage. Paul prays with confidence, and he prays for the Philippians' preparation for the coming ending, the day of the Lord. Now, last week, we began a, just a brief three-week series called Praying with Paul. And what we said was we wanted to go take a peek into how pray, uh, Paul prayed for the churches that he wrote to in order to, to get a sense as to the sorts of things that ought to fill and characterize and, and flavor our prayers. We said a, a great glimpse into uh, God's heart for us in prayer is to go look at the prayers that he inspired Paul to pray and then to, to kind of follow suit and pray with and like Paul. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, where he essentially said, God is big, and he's really big. Whatever category you have for big, God is bigger than that. And that should bring us to a place of awe and adoration at the bigness and the gloriousness of this God. Philippians 1, the passage that Autumn just read, we're going to ask, how does this teach us about God's heart for us, and how does it help us to pray? Now again, the letter to the Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul in approximately 60 AD, so this was about 30 years after the life, life, death, resurrection, and ministry of Jesus. And this church that Paul's writing to, we actually have an account of him planting this church in Acts chapter 16. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invite you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 16 and look at verse 11. That's just a handful of books prior to Philippians. One thing I love about Acts is you have these big dramatic stories that are just kind of given to you a little bit matter-of-factly in a couple of verses. This is one of them. Acts chapter 16, starting at verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made, we, which is interesting because Luke, anyway, we'll, we're teaching Acts soon. We'll talk about that when we get there. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrake and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, uh, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul and some of the disciples, they go to the city of Philippi. They go to a place of prayer. They happen to encounter a few God-fearers, folks who were, uh, who, were, who were Gentiles, who followed the Jewish God but were not yet Christian. They encounter these ladies. They're compelled by the stuff that Paul is saying and the stuff that he's praying and they become Christians. And it says that she must have been very insistent about this. She prevailed upon us and invited us to come to her house. 
And what we know is that a, a church was planted, and it was largely due to wealthy Lydia opening her home to allow the church to have a space to meet. Following this story, we have a story of a possessed slave girl who was used by her owners to make money fortune-telling. She follows Paul and his companions around, and she's mocking them until Paul exercises the demon, and the owners of this girl are livid at having this very valuable asset taken from them. They have Paul and company thrown into prison. And then, while in prison, Paul and Silas are singing hymns to God. And then, there's an earthquake where doors open, their bonds unfasten. And then, the jailer awakes and discovers this, he panics. And then, Paul comforts him, and he comes to faith in Christ. It's an amazing set of stories, this dramatic activity, right at the heart of the founding of this church, the church at Philippi. A church for which Paul has obvious, obvious affection. In addition to being there when he planted this church in Lydia's home, there's been this strong, long-standing partnership with this church. It's referenced in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. He talks about their partnership in the gospel. Now, this doesn't just mean partnership in terms of, you know, we're high-fiving you from a distance, Paul, but probably means that they, they significantly funded Paul as he went about planting other churches and funded him for his missionary journeys. And what's really noteworthy to me about the book of Ephesians is how absolutely, uh, excuse me, the book of Philippians, is how absolutely covered, it up, covered up it is with love, joy, and confidence. In Philippians 4.1, he says, My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, he calls these Christians. Paul loves this church, and it's hard not to feel the joy and the love and the confidence, just it kind of as you read the letter, it's hard not to feel that with Paul. It rubs off on you a bit. But also when I was reading the letter this week, I was struck by how much Paul talks about the ending, the end, the capital D, day of the Lord. The story of the, of the end is a theme that's all over the Bible, and it's especially present here in the book of Philippians. Chapter 1, as we read this, we'll see in a second, it's mentioned twice, the day of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, verse 16, he references again the day of Christ. In chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, he says that he's pressing on towards what is ahead, the resurrection of the dead. In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, we await uh, from heaven our Savior who will return and uh, transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body in the resurrection. And then in chapter 4, verse 5, he says that the Lord and his coming are at hand. It's imminent. And so it's really interesting to consider what Paul is praying in light of the fact that he loves this body tremendously and he's thinking about the imminent return of Jesus. Let's take a look. Start in verse 3, Philippians chapter 1 again. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has fond memories of these saints. He's looking back with nostalgia about, remember when the girl was following us around and we cast out the demon, how, how amazing that was? And remember how the gospel took root in this community and we saw the Lord and his spirit begin to work in you all? Paul says, I have fond memories about you all and I have fond memories about what the Lord was doing and I have fond memories of your partnership with me in ministry. He's thankful for their long-term partnership. 
He calls them partakers in his imprisonment and defense of the gospel. Now, when you were thrown into a Roman prison, the prisons didn't provide the food. So people who loved these prisoners would find ways to sneak loaves of bread through the barred windows. Right? So what was happening here was probably the Philippians were partners in Paul's imprisonment and that they were sending people with money to go buy Paul food so Paul could have food while he was in prison. Of course, Paul has tremendous affection for these folks. Notice the things that he prays with in these few verses. He prays with gratitude for these Christians. He prays with joy for this church. He prays with confidence in God's work in their lives. He prays with, prays with love, hold you in my heart. And he prays with longing to see and to be with them. Paul loves this church. He is thankful for their faithfulness. He has seen God work in them. And it's a delight to pray for them, Paul says. Now it's worth asking, just pausing for a second and considering, are there any people that we can pray for like this in our lives? Are there any folks that we can pray with, pray for rather, with gratitude, with joy, with confidence and love and longing for these brothers and sisters? Are there any brothers and sisters in Christ that we have affection for in this way? And if not, what should that tell us about ourselves? And also, you know, it's interesting too, not only does Paul have this affection, he also expresses this affection for these Christians. You know, maybe for some of us, we answer, we could give you a, an itemized list of the people we love and the way that they have blessed us in Christ. But maybe we're not so great on the encouraging piece. We're not so great on sharing the fact that we feel that way about these brothers and sisters. I, I was thinking about this body, and, and many of us in, our, in, in this body are millennials, which means we were born in a certain age group, and and everybody's obsessed with talking about millennials. But one thing that's true of us is we have difficulty with sincerity. We like sarcasm, and we like to rib each other, but we're not always great at being earnest. So could, we, could, could one response to this passage actually be to be encouraging and to be earnest in our affection and the love that we show one another? It's one thing for Paul to pray like this for them. It's another thing for Paul to tell them that he feels this way and he's praying this way for them. Maybe one application for us would be, let's be earnest in our encouragement and let's pray for people and tell them that we're praying for them. Now, noteworthy also to me in this set of verses is in verse 6, this confidence. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Does anybody know any bad storytellers? Bad storytellers? You know those folks, maybe you're even thinking about the, me along these lines. There's folks who start telling a story and you, you have no confidence that there is any direction to this bad boy. <laughs> this, we have no idea of what this guy is going to say, how it's going to land. Is this thing going to have any kind of point? There's an 80s movie called Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where John Candy and Steve Martin, they get into an argument, and Steve Martin's like, here, let me give you a little bit of advice with your stories. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener, right? There's nothing quite like feeling aimless or pointless. Paul says, God has started a work in you. He says, I was there. I saw and I know how the Lord has worked. And he, he remembers the partnership in those early days. This little group of believers, they're meeting in Lydia's home. They have the rolling bins and their newcomer's cards and the setup teardown and the vinyl kids' partitions. And he's like, I remember what God did in those early days. And now maybe you feel aimless or frustrated at your lack of progress. 
Or maybe you feel like all of your best days are behind you. I see the Lord's work in you. I see evidence of grace. And I know that the Lord, what he started, he will bring it to completion. Take heart, because I am sure of this. The one who kick-started this thing in you way back when will finish. He himself will usher you to that dramatic conclusion. What kind of encouragement do you think this is for the Philippians? What kind of encouragement do you think this is for the Ridgewoodians? Christian, God will bring his own to completion. If he started it in you, he will finish what he started. He is going to fully protect and perfect and restore and complete his own. But now watch how Paul shifts to this prayer. See if anything jumps out on you. Verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now for the countless wonderful qualities that I possess, uh, one of my downfalls is that I can be very stubborn. Um, If you've known me for any length of time, you've probably experienced this. I know, you know, my warmth and my just congenial, charitable persona, that might surprise you. But I've got a little bit of that southern heel-digging tendency in me, if you know what I mean. And, and I'll tell you, one thing that we are not going to do is we are not taking our kids to Disney World. We're just not going to do it. And that's one thing that I'm going to be stubborn about. But I know how some of you feel about Disney World. I know. This is the way it works for a lot of you. You don't just go to Disney World. You build towards the experience of a lifetime at Disney World. You start by picking out your dates, then you start showing the kids the Google images of all of the stuff there. Oh, this is Princess Margaret's castle, and this is the new Moana water ride, and it's going to be so great. You watch YouTube videos of the guys and grown men and children's Mickey ears walking around showing you things in the park. You look at pictures from your last trip from like six months ago, which you don't understand, Then you build out a Disney song playlist that you listen to over and over again. Bonjour, bonjour, part of your world, you're welcome, let it go. (laughs) Then you start getting the passes, you have the food passes, then you have the travel passes, you have the quick ride line passes, the Magic Kingdom passes, the Epcot passes. Then you lay out the different regions in the park that you're going to hit. Day one, we're going to go to this part of Magic Kingdom, and then day two, we're going to go to Animal Adventure Kingdom, and then we're going to go to Star Wars Land. And then as the day gets closer, you start to taste the Dole Whip and the Mickey Waffles and maybe the turkey legs. And then you get out your matching Disney shirts for mom and dad and the kids have their names on it and it's all written with the Disney font on the front. And all of this as a kind of preparation for Disney. Or what we could even say is that all of this is a kind of progressive acclamation as you anticipate entering another world. Disney World. And as you're doing this, all I can see is stress and money and sweat and motion sickness, and I have no interest. All right, so so hang with me here. I think the same kind of thing is exactly what Paul is talking about here in this passage. I think this is what he is praying for these Christians. Preparation. Preparation for the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he prays that that, that their love would abound more and more, that their souls would extend and enlarge. 
Think of Romans chapter 13 where Paul tells us that to love is to fulfill the law of Christ. In any given situation, the answer is always to do what is loving, to do the loving thing. Our love is to increase. But Paul also recognizes that if you've been around for any length of time, you know that the loving thing is not always easy to discern. It's like, sure, be loving, but what is the loving thing? And so Paul prays that their love would abound, but not just that it would abound, but it would abound accompanied by knowledge and discernment. That the Philippians would have a love sharpened to know what is excellent, to know what is right, to know how to love in any given circumstance, to know and to do what is best. Paul prays that their love would abound and that it would be sharpened by knowledge and discernment, but this isn't just a cerebral thing. He says to approve what is excellent. He's not just saying, like, true or false, this item is excellent. He's saying to know and to do what is excellent, verse 11, which results in being filled with the fruit of righteousness, like a Christmas fruit basket cornucopia of good deeds. Paul is praying that they would live well and they would abound in their well-lived lives. But what's the end game of all of that? What does he say? So they would be, therefore, pure and blameless on the day of Christ. In other words, prepared to enter into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Something I love to think about is, is, you know, Sunday comes every single week, and there's always hustle and bustle in, in pulling off a Sunday morning worship gathering. But occasionally, I like to take a step back and just consider what's happening here, to, to sort of look beyond what we can see to what's actually taking place here. And you, you know what's happening here every Sunday morning in our singing, in our Bible reading, in our praying, in our fellowship? What's happening in our life corporately and individually, all of our obedience and growth and holiness? All of this is the future kingdom being made evident, made plain now. What's happening here is we are, if you get my meaning, we are making playlists of kingdom songs and singing them in the car together. We're looking at Google images of what's to come and we're buying the maps and we're getting the passes and we're daydreaming about the Dole Whip, if you understand what I mean. We, we are preparing for the kingdom that is to come. But this is not a piece of the Christian life. This is the Christian life. We are becoming. In our fasting, our praying, our Bible reading, our neighbor loving, our hospitality, our generosity, our singing, our learning to trust and hope, God is making us into citizens of another city, teaching us to breathe the air of another land, a kind of progressive acclamation as we look forward to entering another world. Don Carson, whose book is the inspiration for this teaching series, he wrote in this passage that when we read Paul talking about preparing to be pure and blameless at the day of Christ, we might think that Paul is saying something like, listen here, Philippians, you better start getting your act together and quit acting like knuckleheads, for when Jesus comes back, you might be judged, or, or at the very least, you're going to have some explaining to do. Like this is some veiled threat. But given the way Paul approaches with affection these Christians, what Paul is holding out is something so much more gripping than that. What Paul is telling them is to live like you will be on that day. To live in the present what you will be in the future. So what does this passage in Philippians tell us about God's heart for us? I think it tells us that for the Christian, God's heart for you is growth into what you will be. God's heart for you is growth into what you will be. Something that I've 
shared with my community group many times and I've really just honestly been kind of caught up in over the last year. It's something that we see in 2 Peter chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but just, just listen to this. Peter, another apostle, is writing to another group of Christians and he's got this just amazing couple of ideas here present in 2 Peter 1. He says, speaking of God, that his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The Greek word for excellence is arete. God has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says that God calls us to his glory and excellence so that we can become partakers of his divine nature. I think of passages like Psalm 34, 8 that say, taste and see that the Lord is good. Or I think of Romans chapter 11 like we saw last week, that God is big and he's glorious and he draws us in to experience and know him. And that's our future, friends, is to experience and to know God, the limitless God of all goodness forever and ever. But then in verse 5, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue or excellence. The Greek word is arete. To supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter's saying here is that we are called to God's glory and excellence, A, to partake in it, to enjoy it, to rejoice in who God is, but B, also to grow into and partake in the sense that we learn to walk in that glory and excellence ourselves. God's glory and excellence transforms us because God loves us too much not to make us holy like he is. How does the word holy even sound to you? Maybe for you it conjures up images of like ancient temples, raiders of the lost ark kind of stuff, or maybe you think of faintly peppermented scented sanctuaries when you hear holy. Maybe it feels dusty or, or like drudgery or some big ugly kind of duty. But what if we reframed holiness? What if holiness were instead God's glorious eternity leaking into the present, readying you for life with God there? God's heart for you is growth into what you will be. God is renewing us. He loves us too much not to renew us. God is infinite and he is beautiful, and I hope you understand what I mean by this, but God wants to make you bigger and more beautiful just like he is. Verse 9, I love the spatial language in Philippians 1. God prays that their love would abound and that your fruit would increase. God stretched the limits of who the Philippians are, increase them, free them from the shrinking and shriveling that comes from sin and worldliness. Turn them into a horn of plenty filled with love, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control, generosity, hospitality, discipleship, evangelism, everything else. I'm confident of this, Paul says, he will complete what he started in us. So let's learn to love it. So here's a question for us, just something to consider. Are you learning to love holiness? Are you learning to love what you will be one day? Puritan John Owen, he's got this book called 
the glory of Christ. And he, he, he basically says, like, look, eternity is going to look like being holy and rejoicing in Jesus. So we better start learning to do that now, or it's going to be a bit difficult then. In what areas is holiness still bondage for us? Are, are we learning to love holiness and the glory of Jesus here, present tense? Because God's heart for us is growth into what we will be. So how do we pray in light of this passage? I just encourage you to pray like this, that God would continue and finish his work in you. That God would continue and finish his work in you. Now maybe you hear that and, and, and like me, you kind of notice the tension that's present there. Paul seems to both say, I'm sure God will do this and also I'm praying that God does indeed do this. You say, how, how do we reconcile the tension there? We're confident that God is going to finish, but we're also praying that God would prepare them for the finish. So how do you reconcile that? And my answer is, I don't know how you reconcile that, but Paul doesn't seem to have problems with it, so we're going to rock with Paul on this. May we join with Paul in both his confidence and his plea that the Lord would finish his work in these saints. And maybe we could pray exactly these words that, that he has here in verses 9 through 11 for us and fill it with specifics. Maybe we could pray like this. God, would you make my love abound more and more? I pray for this guy in my community group. He is so hard to love, and he is such a tough person. Would you, make, would you, increase, would you increase me? Would you, would you make my love abound? Would, would, you, would you make me like you and help me breathe the air of the kingdom so that I can learn to be selfless and loving with this particular guy and this particular situation? God, would you sharpen my love with knowledge and discernment so that I can know what is excellent? I'm not sure what to do about this situation, and, and I want to do what's right, and I want to do the loving thing, so I pray that you would show me, that you would, you would hone me to be able to know what to do here. Give me wisdom and clarity on how best to respond to this email, how many exclamation marks to use, and that sort of thing, or this challenging relationship. Help me, help me to know how to navigate this in a way that honors you. Do this so that I would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Would you fill me up with the fruit of righteousness? Would you, would you make me abound with what... The Spirit produces in me. And would you do it in a way that I recognize it's a gift from you, Lord Jesus, and that it would be ultimately for your glory, not mine. And I pray these things ultimately so that I would be ready for your return, so that I would be taking moment by moment, step by step, steps towards who you are calling me to be and who you will make me to be one day inevitably. Pray that God would continue and finish his work in you. And also, Pray that God would continue and finish his work in others. One way, the very tangible way to pray with Paul and to pray like Paul is to pray a lot for other people. What if we, what if we made this a routine prayer for people in our community group? We prayed these three, four verses for the folks who are in our homes week after week after week, the folks that we rub shoulders with on Sunday. What if we prayed these prayers and these requests for one another and, and see how the Lord might answer that and continue to transform our church. Pray that God would continue and finish his work in you. Pray that God would continue and finish his work in others. Now, we mentioned last week that these three weeks as we pray with Paul, we're going to take time at the end of our service to pray in our service, to pray the things, uh, reflecting on the things that were just spoken about, the things that we just read and heard about. Last week, we invited folks to come to the altar and just pray and just take time to come before the Lord. 
something maybe you brought in this morning or something that the Spirit stirred up as you were here listening to the Scripture this morning. The invitation is here again for you today. We invite you to come to the altar, to come pray. Come bring prayers of adoration, bring your need, bring your burdens. Come pray and beg God to do this work in our church family, that he would increase us and abound us in love. Would you come this morning and pray and cast your cares on the Lord? Because he cares for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us these scriptures that teach us your heart for us, both in prayer and in our discipleship. And we pray that as we reflect on these words and as we see Paul's, um, Paul's love for these saints manifested in a, in a desire for them to grow holy, God, I pray that that would, that would help us to see the, the urgency, but, but, but also the, the glory of, of becoming like you of becoming partakers of the divine nature, of being called into your glory and excellence that we both taste and see and also learn to embody ourselves. We pray that you would make us a glory, glorious and excellent church filled with the fruit of righteousness, abounding in love, with a love that is sharpened by knowledge and discernment so that we would be prepared for the day of Christ. I pray for my friends who are here this morning who have not yet believed and are here this morning out of sheer curiosity. I pray that they would come to see and understand what it is that we, what we partake of. Your goodness, God, and your grace to us in Christ. Would you continue to bless our efforts in fasting and prayer over the next few weeks? Pray that you be glorified this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name.